Our scripture reading uh, for today uh, is in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. If you'd like to follow along with me. This is from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him, and three days after being killed, he'll rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be the last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and be seated. If you will, um, join me in prayer. God, we're thankful. We're thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you've shown us who you are, that you've shown us Christ through your word, that you have recorded for us these things, these stories, so that we might learn more about you. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you would open our heart to its truth, that you would show us Jesus, that you would meet us in the text by the power of your spirit, that you would transform us, and cause us to live godly lives. Thank you so much. We pray, God, that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our study of Mark, and I have to let you know that we actually have a lot of work to do this morning. We're going to cover a massive amount of text. Uh, John read to us Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. But in actuality, we're going to be covering the entirety of uh, Mark chapter 9, 30 through chapter 10, verse 45. This is a large block of text, I understand. And we're not used to covering this much text at one time. Um, but I want to—I actually want to take this moment, before we jump into like the meat of this, to... Um, to give you a Bible reading and Bible study tip, right? So you have a lot of ways that you can read the Bible, and oftentimes it focuses on small portions of the text that we can distill into applicable truths. Like we want application. What do I do with this text, and how do I get from it something that I can immediately apply to my life uh, to make it better or to make me more godly, and that is good. Uh, but sometimes we forget that the, the scriptures, though they're 66 books written over thousands of years, that they are a uniform story of a gracious God who is doing this work in 
through creation, in the midst of the fall, by redemption, and ultimately in bringing all things to pass, we forget that this storyline is one big movement. And sometimes a good way to study the Bible is to say, this time I'm not going to distill any principles from it. I'm just going to read a large block of text and see what's happening, right? If, if you were to read Genesis in one sitting, which is really ambitious because it's 55 chapters, I think. If you were to read Genesis in one sitting, there are points of interaction that would stand out to you that don't when you read it over the course of two months. Because you would see that Jacob or Isaac and Jacob visit some of the same places that Abraham does and have some of the same similar encounters. You would see the sins of the father, as scriptures say, playing out in the children. Or you would see the promise of God being exponentially given to children. If you were to read all of the the narrative of Exodus at the same time, right? You would see a story of a God who's been delivering from the beginning and who part of his deliverance is the ways that he commands his people to live. You wouldn't see it as like, here are good stories about Moses, right? Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, right? And then here's a bunch of laws. You would see it as God who is continually redeeming and saving a people, Likewise, these stories, the teachings of Jesus, sometimes we break them down into their smallest part and we try and figure out, well, what's Jesus saying about this topic or this topic? But we forget that the author of the, the, epist- of the gospel, so in this case, Mark, Mark is trying to convey a specific point about Jesus. And he's grouped these stories together, these teachings together um, on purpose, which, which is really the case here, because if you go through each of the teachings that we're about to explore, each of them could have their own moral. They could have their own like endpoint and application. What is Jesus trying to say about money? What is Jesus trying to say about children? What is Jesus trying to say about this or that? But if you notice in the other Gospels, these lessons aren't given together. Mark has chose to compile these lessons together because there's something about Jesus as king that he wants us to realize. And so we want to understand, I want us to understand the overarching theme that's found in this section because it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And I think the overarching theme can be distilled from the first section. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the text that John read really well. And then we're going to fly over the other teachings and show how they're building into this theme, even with their unique sort of uh, bents and, and, and focus points. So let's come back to this text and read it again. <clears throat> they left that place and made their way through Galilee. So it's been a couple weeks. So just remember, that place is the place where Jesus uh, healed the, the sick boy who everyone thought was dead and by all rights was dead, and Jesus raises him. And if you recall, the disciples and the scribes were without Jesus because he was at the Mount of Transfiguration with James, John, and Peter. Uh, and he comes, and they're fighting. The disciples are arguing with the scribes about how it is that you heal sick people 
and who does it better, basically. Meanwhile, the boy is dying, and Jesus comes and heals the boy and then chastises both his disciples and the scribes for the folly and the faithlessness of their argument. And they leave now, having Jesus having healed this boy, having cast out this demon, right? <clears throat> and, and it says they made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. So Jesus wants them to go under the radar, which doesn't happen much with Jesus, right? You're healing people, you're casting out demons, you're raising people from the dead. Like, it's hard to, to not be noticed. But he wants to be unnoticed because he wants to teach his disciples something. And so they go through, and they're, they, they, he doesn't want anyone to know, and he was teaching his disciples and telling them that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He says they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now, in order to understand everything else that's happening, you have to understand the weight of what Jesus is saying and just how unexpected it would have been to his disciples. We've talked about this phrase before because Jesus keeps using it about himself. He keeps using this phrase, son of man, son of man. If you were to go through the Gospels, particularly the synoptics, and you were to look at the things that Jesus calls himself more than any other title, the title Jesus uses for himself is son of man. The son of man, not son of God. He talks about God as father, but the son of man, right? Not the lamb, not the redeemer, not, not the, the Christ the son of the living God, as Peter identifies him, the son of man. He says, the son of man will do this. You'll see the son of man, and this is going to be happening. You will see the fullness of the son of man. And you have to understand, if you don't recall, like we need to be reminded of the fact that that is not a term that would be unfamiliar to his disciples or to anyone who was particularly religious in that region, in that day, and when I say religious, I mean practicing Judaism. Because the Son of Man is a reference, at its very least, to Daniel. It's a phrase that gets used over and over again in the, in the Old Testament. But it finds its weird culmination in the story of Daniel. And so if you remember the story of Daniel, the people of Israel have been exiled. They're in Babylon. And we know a lot of cool stories about Daniel. And oftentimes when we think about Daniel, we think about what? Like he didn't eat the food and he got healthier and that was amazing. See, if you stick to your convictions, right, God will bless you, right? What else do we know? We know the, that he had three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had other names that we don't really remember, right? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and so they got thrown in the fire, right? And if you'll just not bow down to the temptations of the world, then you won't get burned up by the trials and the fire of the world, right? We know these stories. What else do we know? That Daniel refused to stop praying, even when it was illegal, and so he was thrown into a den of lions, and the lions kind of just chilled on one side while he was on the other. And the people were like, well, the lions aren't eating him up. Maybe he's got his eyes. And so if you, if you follow God in the faith, right, we have all of these stories and, and we've distilled them well. But then that's kind of where our knowledge of Daniel ends. And we forget that Daniel has like revelation type prophecy, right, like just wild prophetic visions. 
that he's given from God, right? And we don't really explore that as much, but part of his vision is that he sees ultimately God coming in glory, the ancient of days, and he comes and he's seated at the throne, and then the scripture says, I saw one like a son of man. And he came and he was seated next to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gave him all his authority, dominion, and power. And the creatures around the throne worshipped him. And I expect that part of the reason we don't really talk that much about that text is because it's weird and it's hard to, like, grasp. And yet here Jesus is saying, my whole ministry has to be understood in the context of the Son of Man. And so they have this idea about the Son of Man, the chosen one who would sit next to God and reign and would be worthy of glory, the Son of Man who comes in power, the Son of Man who will not be denied. Right? Think about this. If we, we live in a world where empires exist and where power reigns supreme and the reason there are arms races or the reason we really want some people to not have certain types of weapons is because power wins out in a world orchestrated, constructed, system set up like ours. Power is big and so here comes the son of man, one like a son of man, one who's in the form of a son of man and he has all power and all dominion and all authority. Who can stand against the son of man? David asks a similar question. Who can stand against the Lord's anointed? No one. And so this is their understanding of the son of man. And so listen, they can get with Jesus talking about being the son of man when he's casting out demons and when he's healing people and when he's doing all these things. But here comes Jesus and he subverts their understanding of the son of man because all of a sudden he says three things that the son of man has to experience. He says, first of all, the son of man must be betrayed. Must be killed. And he must rise again. The Son of Man must be betrayed, he must be killed, he must be resurrected. And so now, I want you to take those first two things, and I want you to line them up with the vision that Daniel has and the understanding that an Israelite in that day would have had about the Son of Man. All dominion, all power, all authority, all glory, seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, who we know is God by the Father. Who would betray him? No one in their right mind. That's the whole point. You read the story and you have hope in this figure because no one would betray him. You'd be out of your mind to betray him. He has whatever God you believed in. If Daniel's vision is correct, then they all are subordinate to this ancient of days, this God, or non-existent, and and therefore, to the, to the Son of Man, if, if the gods won't betray him, which of the, the followers of those gods would betray Who in their right mind would betray the Son of Man? All of a sudden, already, the idea that the Son of Man will come and bring this un <coughs> inescapable uh, allegiance is being questioned. Like, there, this concept of what the Son of Man is meant to be doesn't resonate with what they've been taught. But then there's more. 
not only is he going to be betrayed, right? Okay, so fine. He's betrayed. There's some fools, some fools who really wants like, who wants to catch that fire, right? And so he's going to betray, he's going to try, right? And they're like, okay, okay. David gives us something of this, right? Uh, the, the nations, the kings of the earth, they gather together and plot against the Lord. Uh, but, but our God laughs at them. He holds them in derision, right? These are just the fools getting held in derision. Then Jesus goes further and says, and he must be handed over and killed. And now there is no understanding of the Son of Man that is suitable for what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the Son of Man is not only going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed. Ah, that can't happen. That can't happen, Jesus. Like, we know the vision. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, they're both being worshipped. Something's going on with these two, but I know what's not, death kill one like a god. You can't kill a god or the god. You can't kill the son of man. And yet here Jesus is saying, ah, the path that lies before me is one of death. Right? And so before we go on to this third thing resurrected, I want you to see how he is <coughs> how he is subverting the ways and the order of the world. Like if we were to title this sermon, which we did. So the title of the sermon is The Upside Down King, right? And it's, he's flipping on its head. He's inverting all the ways that we think about the universe and power. And so the first thing, when you see that he's betrayed, what you realize is that they lived in a world where power is absolute. And Jesus is saying the way to victory is not through power. It's through weakness. And then the Son of Man who comes is going to die. And all of a sudden, what, what do you think death is? It's not the last enemy. And in some regards, the New Testament confirms that and says the last enemy to be defeated is death. But death is not where you want to go. And if you're looking at someone thinking they're going to be a Messiah, they're going to be the one who brings in this reign, you know what they're not going to do? Die. Right? There have been a lot of, of messianic figures to date and they figured out that none of them were messiahs because they were all killed. And they were like, there are movements, you can read about them, like historic movements where it's like, yeah, this is the dude. And they're running hard with the dude and then off with his head. And they're like, <laughs> was it the dude? We were just, you know, <laughs> we were just practicing. This was a drill, right? It was just a drill, right? And so Jesus comes, he's raised the dead. This is not a drill. He's got to be handed over and die. Death was this great fear, this great thing that would stop the work of God. And yet Jesus says, actually, death is not the end. Death is not the end. And the way to victory will be to die. The way to life is to die. He's inverting all these things. And then, finally, he says, this is really important. Jesus is predicting his resurrection, yes, but he's doing something else to the disciples. He says, <coughs> sorry, and after he is killed, he will rise. Now, if he had stopped there, it would not have been an issue for anyone. Right? All of his disciples were on the conservative side of the Jewish religious order. In other words, they believed in a bodily resurrection. 
but they believed that the bodily resurrection would happen for everyone at whatever is known as the end of time. Resurrection is this thing that God does. We don't know what it means, but it happens later. The glory, the future, the kingdom, the fullness happens later. Jesus says, three days, you will raise again. And so what he is saying to them is that the glory and the fullness of glory is not something that's reserved for later. It's something that's going to break in right now. This order that the Son of Man establishes is for right now. When the Son of Man is raised, the kingdom will be here already. Not yet in its fullness, but already. Resurrection happens in our life and in our lifetime. Right? This is a new understanding. Resurrection for them was something you almost didn't even need to think about it. It was so far removed. And now Jesus places it right in their midst. And so he is saying that right now, as the king is with you, as the son of man is with you, he is bringing in a new order where the things that seem to be the powerful and on top are now flipped over. And the things that seem to be the road to weakness are now the ways of glory and power. It's a new way of living that Jesus is promising. It is so new, in fact, that his disciples are unable to get it. And the scriptures tell us as much. We could have known, we could have intuited that, we could have understood. They're not going to understand this. Not until he's raised at the very least. And even then, we, we still wrestle to understand this. But Mark's like, actually, they had no idea what he was talking about. Right, like that's how the story goes. So Jesus said these things, and they blinked at him a little bit, and then they all just kind of walked away silently. And they huddled all together like, you know. Um, <clears throat> they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. And rather than explore it more, what's amazing is that they begin to argue among themselves about something, and Jesus is walking ahead. They've fallen back. They're following him, but they're <laughs> arguing. And if you need further evidence that they don't get it, Jesus, when they get where they're going, is like, so what were you guys arguing about? And Jesus is like, he's kind of like a cop here. <laughs> right? It's like all the evidence is there, laid out before Jesus. He probably heard them arguing. And he wants them to confess. <laughs> like, he wants them to give themselves up. He wants them to say what they were arguing about, and they have this sense that what they were arguing about is not something he would be pleased with. Because all of them, together, plead the fifth. <laughs> but they were silent. <laughs> because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. All right? So Jesus has just said, the Son of Man, the one who God gave all the authority on heaven and on earth, is going to be betrayed, killed, and have to be raised again. And they're like, okay, Jesus, but really, though, which one of us do you think is the greatest? Right? And they all have their case for why they're the greatest. Right? Well, the three of us we saw in the Transfiguration, so it's at least down to Peter, James, and John. Who is the greatest? Right? Well, when we were out going out, I healed this person, or I did that person, or I understand it the most. Peter, of course, you know Peter's leading the way on this one. I identified him as the Christ. Like, <laughs> I did it, right? It's me. Uh, how many steps did y'all take on water, right? And, and they're arguing 
about it, and it's absurd. They've missed the point. And they were silent. Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And Jesus, again, is furthering, he's, he's, he's doubling down. He's, he's doubling. So you get this? If, if this has to happen to the Son of Man, if this is the way of the Son of Man and the way of the King and the way of the King's kingdom, if it's upside down and inverted, if it's a, the Son of Man delivers by being delivered into the hands of evil, if it's the Son of Man redeems by being condemned, if it's the Son of Man rules by serving, then if you follow him, this is your path too. See, they should have understood what Jesus is saying is this is the way of my kingdom. So if you're a citizen of it or if you want to partake of it or if you want to see it, then this must be your way as well. What should have happened is they should have stopped in that moment and been clamoring to serve one another. They should have been, as, as the scripture said, they should have been trying to outdo one another in service and in humility and in kindness. Instead, they're bickering about who's got the better theology. They're bickering about whose denomination is really the right one. They're bickering about these trivial matters because they want glory. They want greatness. And Jesus says, actually, actually, if you want to get to the Father, if you want to get to the Shepherd, you have to go to the weakest link. And in that day, there were none weaker, none less secure in rights, none with less autonomy than a child. And while I do wish that Mark had filled in some of the details, like whose child was it? Where were they? How did he end up in the midst of the disciples? Is it cool that Jesus picked him up? Right? We don't <laughs> get that. All we get is that, is that Jesus says, if you want to receive me or the one who sent me, you have to receive the least among us. And this is the point. You have to see the marginalized. You have to see the weak. You have to see the ones who cannot protect themselves, the vulnerable. You have to see the ones on the outside. You have to receive the ones on the bottom. In fact, you have to go below the bottom in order to serve those who society has called the bottom if you want to see anything of the kingdom that I am building and each of the next teachings, each of the next teachings highlight that in a different and unique way. So let's go to the first one. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. All right, so you get the story. Somebody's possessed with a demon. Here comes somebody. He's seen the disciples cast out in the name of Jesus. He's seen it work. He has faith that for some reason, the name of Jesus uh, breaks the chains and the bonds of spiritual oppression. And so he goes and he starts casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the disciples are like, this dude isn't with us. 
They've got like this MMA mentality, and I don't usually reference MMA, but here we are, right? Like MMA, right? So if you if you know much about these, like these fighters don't just go to Gold's Gym, <laughs> right? They don't have like a punching bag in their house. No shade to Gold's Gym or a punching bag in your house, right? Like, but but if you want to fight at elite levels, right, you have to train with elite fighters. And so they have teams, they have camps, they have a coach that will be over a whole bunch of people, and you'll see it. In their camp, they have all of these different weight class people, but they're, they're, they're sparring together, they're rolling together, they're training together, and there's pride in their team. And so when they have their individual fights, people show up, and they, they are there for their team, right? It's that sort of mentality, and they've got this mentality like, dude, th- he wasn't with us. And now he's going to put on our jersey? Like, that's not how it works, man. You got you to gotta, you gotta come up through the system, too. Right? You, Jesus didn't call you out of a boat. This guy isn't with us, Jesus. Should we stop him? And that would make sense in that day. It would make sense now. Because there is a mentality that if you're not with us, then you're suspect or against us. If you are not like us, then you are suspect or against us. You have to go through our way, our understanding, our system, in order for us to even begin to trust you. You are on the outside until we say you're in. And Jesus inverts that. He says, look, (laughs) don't stop them, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Now that's some like theological mess that we have difficulty with, isn't it? Whoever's not against us is for us, Jesus says. Jesus says, you're used to making these boundaries, but I'm telling you that the boundaries that I've made, they're a lot bigger than the ones that you've drawn. Right? Like y'all might think that you need to have memorized Calvin's Institutes to be on the team, but I'm telling you there are a lot of people who are way on the other side, right? You're going to be surprised who's in heaven. You're going to be surprised who Jesus uses. And you better be very, very very careful when saying they're not one of us. The way of the king is a way of inclusion, and it happens through the death and the life of Jesus. The disciples are trying to draw lines, and Jesus is saying, look at the fruit, man. Look at the fruit. You're doing this in my name? You think they're going to come after me? Or they're going to come after you? Right? This is a way of flipping how they understand the world, how they see life. Right? Yeah, there's, there's lessons to be pulled, but again, Jesus is saying the way you thought it was is not the way that it is. And so then he moves on. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Yikes. 
And yet, when you consider the context that they live in, where the Pharisees are actively trying to pull people away from Jesus, where the scribes and the Sadducees are actually actively trying to take people and move them away from Jesus, why are they doing this? They're doing this because in so much as Jesus is active and present and healing and caring for the poor and teaching them this new way, they lose their political, they lose their religious, they lose their social status and power. And they care more about their power than about the kingdom of God. They care more about their power than about the visible Messiah who is in front of them, than about the very scriptures that they purport to defend. And Jesus says, look, the way that they're doing this, and you see it, it's actually causing people who are moving towards grace and freedom in Christ, towards righteousness and proximity to Christ. It's causing them to move away, to fall, to stumble, to walk away altogether. And Jesus says, if the way that you're teaching even if it's shaped by the words of Scripture, is not so full of the Spirit and the heart of Scripture that it actually moves people away from the God of Scripture. And I don't care where you got your MDiv or Master's in Theology or degree. I don't care what church you go to and what cool great path. I don't care what podcast you listen to. I don't care what tribe you associate with. It would be better that Jesus sent them in a crowd. That's a lesson that a lot of us, myself included, need to learn. We're trying to get people onto our team instead of to Jesus. And it's when a lot of people hurt and walk away. And we can do better. But the point is, Jesus is flipping this on its head, right? Like, the way to God is precision, rightness, correctness, accuracy. Holding on to that religious power so that we can keep everything pure. Right? What Jesus is saying is, if in doing that, like, you're missing it. You are missing it. It's not about power. And what's interesting is it's not after a conversation about lust, which is usually where we take this next passage. It's not after a conversation about, like, theft or something like that. It's after this that he says, all right, so listen. (coughs) If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. It's the first time Jesus has mentioned hell. I wish we could talk more about it maybe another time. We don't have time for it now. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown to hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. He's going in. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how should you season it? Have salt among yourself and be at peace with one another. All right, so Jesus now follows up with this. And so what's interesting is that a couple of things are happening. A couple of things. Number one, Jesus is saying you need to cut away that pride in your life. But the way that he's doing it is actually addressing another instance of power dynamics in the culture. Because you see, old was, to be, was considered a disease, right? 
Like, you see these people, they have leprosy, or they're blind, or they're lame. They can't function in society, not cared for by society, outcasts in society. In fact, the prevailing question when you saw somebody who was disabled, what sin did they commit that God would let them like this, let this happen to them? And though they didn't for it back then, like we do now, about much is ableism and the ways that we treat the disabled. But what God is saying is that the disabled, and in and, and these points, what Jesus is saying, like these are people without power, without rights, without care, without perception, and they are actually closer to God than you are because it's not about the body. In fact, you keep the fullness of yourself if you are disabled and you understand who God is and how God loves and how God works. And so Jesus is taking a, a group of people who were not protected, who were not uh, provided for by law. And he is saying they have necessarily a better understanding of the kingdom that is coming than you do. And so much as you do not live by my Again, he's taking a pattern. That's not what you would think. I think you would say, like, this is what they would think you like. Then it's as though you're disabled. So piece that arm back together so that you might inherit the kingdom. Because nothing broken will enter the kingdom. That's not what he's doing. He flips it on its head. And then he keeps going, right? This one is tough. We're going <coughs> to come back to it uh, tomorrow. Or not tomorrow. He set out there and went uh, to the region of Judea, across the Jordan, and crowds converged on him again. And as was his custom, he taught them again. And some Pharisees came to ask him, is it lawful for wife? He replied to them, what did Moses say? And they said, the Pharisees who know the law, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Another translation might say, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send his woman away. But Jesus told them, the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned them about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, Paul has a lot to say about And that's too much to get into in lots of time. And so we're going to talk about this and another hard teaching of Jesus next week. But I want you to at least understand the principle of the matter here. The way that the law was constructed and the way that people talked about it, it for a man who had all of the power and all the rights and all the wealth and all of the, like this is literally what's happening here, to, for any reason, divorce away his wife. Now, once you are divorced, that's it. You have nothing in society. 
society was constructed in such a way that basically to be in that culture was to be at the whim of, of your husband at any point in time. And that without warning, this and without cause, and this is the heart of the question because of the way that they answer Jesus. It was okay for a man to say, you are no longer my wife. You no longer have my protection. You no longer have my vision. I'm done with you. I want someone or something else. Goodbye. And nothing protected that woman. In fact, the sum total of society would work against her. She's vulnerable, marginalized, and broken. And they come and say to Jesus, so and he says, you know, And Jesus is coming against their assumptions. And he's inverting what they know to be right about the world. And he says, for this reason, God made them male and female. Before he goes to Genesis 2, right, he starts in Genesis 1, and he cites the fact that God made them male and female. What? What is surrounding that fact? In his likeness, after his image, Jesus goes back to creation and says, what you guys are trying to do here and how you're trying to entrap me in this, uh, you not only miss the law, you miss the law because you miss the deeper truth of creation, and that is that both male and female are created equally uh, in the likeness of God. They have the same value. They have the same worth before God. They are created in the image of God. And the first words from God about male and female are not difference in hierarchy. The first words from God about male and female are likeness. And you've ordered this world. And it's upside down. And in my kingdom, the response to both is the same. Now we can talk about that response next week. I just want you to see. Do you see, like, that's the primary theme. If we sit there and argue about what constitutes, like, a divorce that's okay, then not only are we missing what Jesus is trying to do, like, we are dangerously doing so. Like, we're, 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 we're zeroing in on a, a tree while missing the forest and thinking that we can, like, rightly identify what's going on here. Right? Those conversations are important because they're like down in the dirt, like they're real life conversations, but we can't forget what Jesus is doing. He's subverting the ways that we think about things. He keeps on going. People are bringing little children. He says, don't stop bringing the kids to me. Let the children come because the kingdom of God belongs to children, not to the ones who are adults, not to the ones who are grown, not to the ones who are educated, not to the ones who have power and money and know how the world works. It's the ones who see the world with innocent eyes and with eyes of faith. Then, finally, because we're going to come to the rich young ruler next week. We kind of get this 
conversation cycled and closed down. So it starts. And the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus teaches them all these things. You can't hear me? Jesus is teaching all these things about who is the greatest. And after hearing all of these things that Jesus said, they're like, yeah, but which one's going to sit at your right and left hand? Who's going to sit next to you in glory and drink from the same cup? <laughs> Jesus had the right to like just give a primal scream right here. <laughs> and just start throwing things. Pick a new 12. <laughs> Hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> like, Y'all 12, come on. Cause Are you kidding me? That's, that's what we're supposed to see as we read this. They're arguing about this. <laughs> and so Jesus says, fine, all right, you want to sit at my right hand? You want to sit at my left hand? You want to sit at my table? You want to share my cup? Okay. If you want to share my cup, you have to be able to drink it. And do you think you can? Because you can drink this cup. And Jesus, I don't know what his attitude is. Mine would have been frustration. I'm not God. Jesus in this reveals like the one truth that I, I hope we all can come to grasp right now. So Jesus is creating a new king. It's inverting, it's subverting all the ways of this world. And if we want to be a part of that kingdom, then we we follow in that way. And the question becomes how, and I could give you a bunch of practices, principles, rules. You can find them yourself. But there's something even greater happening. Like the ultimate consummation of the kingdom is this feast. And Jesus seated and drinking with his friends, with his disciples, with his people, with his citizens. This is the ultimate. And so they're talking about when it's all said and done. I want to be there, I want to be next to you, and I want to be drinking from it, drinking with you. And Jesus says, this is the way that it all gets said and done. I'm going to have to drink from a cup. If you can drink from this cup, then go ahead, plan about where you're going to sit. But Jesus knows that they can't. Because Jesus is still the Son of Man, and when you look throughout Scripture, cups, bowls, like they have significance throughout all of prophetic literature. And you see in Daniel, you see in Ezekiel, you see in Revelation, cups and bowls being poured out. And they're always filled with the same thing. So when Jesus says, as the Son of Man, I have to drink from this cup, he is saying, there is a cup filled to the brim with God's declaration about the state of this world, with God's righteous condemnation of what sin has done to his image and to the world that he lives in. There is a cup filled to the brim with the wrath of God. And the scripture says that Jesus, of his own will and of his own accord, and by his strength and in his perfection, chose on our behalf to drink to the dregs every last drop 
of God's love. He drank it. He absorbed it. And in doing so, he has made a way for us to live in that kingdom. Because he's drank it, it's lost its power and its sting. And we can share in his suffering. We can be crucified with Christ. And this is necessary to live and to see this upside down kingdom. And this is the invitation. It's for you. If you have not yet drank with Christ, if you've not yet received this gift that Christ gives, it's for you. But if you're a Christian, the invitation is to keep drinking, to keep walking with Christ, to keep being reminded of what this table leads us to. And I'm going to pray and and uh, someone, Emily, I think, yeah, is going to lead us in the table.